invite you at this time to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 23. We're moving on in our uh, the travels of the Apostle Paul. We've been uh, quite a distance with him already. He's completed his three missionary journeys, taken the collection back to Jerusalem. He's landed there. He's gone over to Jerusalem from Caesarea where he was uh, with another group of those who accompanied him on that collection. And he's excited to bring that collection back. He's excited for all of the poor saints in Christ that are there in Jerusalem. And as he arrives, of course, James and the elders of the Jerusalem church let him know that uh, there are some people who are not happy with him, to put it mildly. So they say, look, we've got a plan for you here. We have four men, four uh, Jewish men uh, who are, have taken a Nazarite vow and they're ready to make their commitment in the temple, pay their uh, dues for them and go with them. That will show those accusers of yours that are accusing you in a threefold way of being against Moses, against the people of God and against the temple that you are in fact not that and so he does that. He goes in with them. Somebody sees him in the temple, had seen him earlier with Trophimus, a known uh, Christian, but Gentile Christian, uh, in town. So they just assumed that these were Gentiles that were being escorted by the Apostle Paul into a place that the Gentiles were not allowed to go on penalty of death. So the they shout out, there he is, there's the man, and they want to kill him. And the priests close the door, the gate, rather, at the temple that would keep them from coming into the court of the women of the court of the priests and uh, the court of the high priest and so on, out into the courtyard of the Gentiles. Essentially saying, if you're going to kill him, do that out in the court of the Gentiles. Don't mess up the floor in here. Pretty interesting conclusion they come to there and so he's being beaten they're beating him to death they want to kill him it's a ravenous crowd and they're sh one's shouting one thing and another shouting another thing and so it's as most of these riots tend to be there isn't any sense made out of what's being shouted as far as getting any clarity on these charges and so the the Roman soldiers, the garrison that is housed in the Antonia Fortress is up high above the Temple Mount area, and they can see down. And their big charge, their, their, their supreme uh, uh, directive from Caesar is to keep the peace. Pax Romana, that's your job. So we have Claudius Lysias, who is the uh, Chiliarch, which is, means that he oversees a garrison of a thousand that is made aware that there's this riot going on and they descend down the steps to quell the riot, to stop it and say, okay, what is all of this about? Paul makes his case from the steps as they had bound him in chains to bring him back to the Atonia Fortress, not only for his own safety, but to try to discern what the charges are. They actually uh, insisted that people abide by the laws. You couldn't just get mad at somebody and beat them into a pulp you had to actually have some bona fide legit charges. And so he wasn't able to discern anything from that crowd. So Paul makes his appeal, the first of what will ultimately be six defenses as we finish out the book of Acts. He made the second uh, defense to the council. That didn't end well either. It seems like whenever Paul opens his mouth, a riot ensues. Imagine that. So 
he is explaining himself. He's giving his defense. And we talked about the strategy that he uses, given the audience he is uh, speaking to, which is helpful to us to understand what some of the strategies are. Because it is with a great deal of wisdom that Paul uh, addresses the various uh, audiences that he has. Of course, now they'll be taking him to Caesarea to stand before the governor Felix, and then on from the governor Felix, he'll see Festus, the next governor, and then uh, he'll see the king there, and he'll go on, of course, to Rome. So in those three settings, he'll make six defenses. And so we've just finished his second, as I said. And so they heard that when Paul ended by saying that he has been called of the Lord to the Gentiles, that's when they exploded. So they take him out of there. And um, the last verse of uh, the verse 11, rather, excuse me, in chapter 23, the following night, the Lord stood by him, said, take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. So you must testify in Rome. That's the big deal with Paul, because we've established throughout his journeys that he was convinced that the Lord would have him show up and preach the gospel in Rome. So it's a rather circuitous route that the Lord has him on to be sure. But this is the Lord reassuring Paul. We can understand. I mean, he's a human after all, where he would say, I'm supposed to get to Rome. And yet I keep getting uh, riots foisted on me and now I'm in chains and it's back and forth. I saw the council and now the council wants to kill me. So the Romans bring him back into the Antonia fortress. It's, it's got to be difficult for Paul at this point, as I mentioned to you before. So you're struck, if anything, by his demeanor throughout all of this. Not just here, but in the journeys when he was stoned to death or attempted to kill him in Lystra, uh, where he's thrown into prison in Philippi, when he's put into the stocks with Silas. And we see him over a period of years, for the most part, hanging on to his composure. And we admire that as we see it, because we know how easily sometimes we can become rankled in trying to share the gospel. How does he do that? How does Paul do that? And we've paused for that question before, but I want to take a little bit of time before we get into the text to make something very clear, something that I think is a doctrine that is absolutely essential if you and I are going to be able to maintain our composure, our demeanor, and approach people who are otherwise hostile and opposed to the gospel without beginning to unravel ourselves. And that is a doctrine that I think is, is least familiar to many Christians. They've heard the word. They think they know what it means. And we're going to unpack what it means because I think that this is the key essential, not only for Paul back in his day, but for us. And that is the doctrine of providence, the doctrine of providence. A lot of times people conflate the idea of sovereignty with with providence. And the two are different, even though they're related uh, in, in a way that we'll see, hopefully. I want to spend some time uh, understanding what that is before we enter into the text. So with that in mind, you can see Paul as he's continuing to maintain a calm disposition. He was very respectful, you'll remember, with, 
with the tribune, Claudius Lysias. As a matter of fact, he impressed him. He was speaking to him in clear Greek to where Lysias says, do you know Greek? He was impressed that he was speaking not just any Greek, but a very polished, educated Greek. And then he turns and he addresses the crowd in their native tongue in, in Aramaic. So he's, he's won over the tribune over the entire garrison. He's, he wants to see what are these actual charges because he's looking at Paul. He's like, this isn't the kind of guy that's a troublemaker. So what we want to do is we want to take a look at what I believe keeps him undeterred from continuing to press on toward Rome. Everything seems like it's trying to throw him off from that goal. And he does, he's immovable, but he's just a man, isn't he? But he's a man that doesn't seem to falter. He's a man. These are things that should catch our attention, that we should admire, that we should strive for ourselves as we're going through this. Yes, we can probably gain something by reading through these stories. This is the historical narrative of the birth of the church. We see that. We know it's a historical record. There's still theological importance that we can derive from it, absolutely. But we would be remiss if we didn't stop and say, this is one impressive demonstration of the absolute intricate providence of a sovereign God. And that's what we want to well, that's what we want to talk about this morning. He remains calm and composed when he's being persecuted, even with physical harm. So we're going to talk about uh, divine providence before we go on in his journeys into verse 12 to 30. So doing things a little bit different. So let's hold on and have a little understanding of the importance of this important doctrine. First of all, we understand from God's names. I, some of you have memorized the names of God, and they're beneficial, aren't they? It tells you so much about God that we learn about from his various names that he reveals in Scripture. He is Elohim. He's a plural God. We learn from that Elohim. We also learn that he is the creator God. He is Elohim. He is also El Elyon. That is God most high. So because he is the anointed or exalted rather creator God and because he created all things he is also El Elyon he is the God above all other gods that there might be or that man could possibly conjure up so God is the sole creator of everything that exists so therefore we conclude that he's sovereign ruler over all things that were created because he created them I'm starting on a fa building a foundation. And this hopefully will clarify some things for some of us who maybe didn't have a clear understanding of what providence is. And, 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 and as I keep repeating, is the importance of understanding that doctrine. Psalm 103, 19, for instance, says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Now, mind you, I'll remind you that, and we do talk about this a lot, these doctrines, the doctrines of his sovereignty and providence and so, so on, are meant to do what? Louder? Comfort us. Yeah, we're not, we, we, we push, give it pushback because of our what? Pride, because we want to be God, right. But Psalm 47, 2 says, For the Lord, the Most High, there it is, El Elyon, the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Psalm 47, 8, God reigns over the nations. 
God sits on his holy throne. Right there, your soul, your spirit ought to find some rest. This is a God who is sovereign over all. As sovereign God orders all things that ever occur or will occur by divine decree according to his will for his glory. Important statement. Let me read it again. Should be there for you. As sovereign God orders all things that ever occur or will occur by divine decree according to his will. So he's the God who appoints all things. He's a God, the God of uh, Isaiah 46, 9 to 10. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. I declare the end from the beginning. So all through Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, we can see that God is the sovereign God. But what else does it say? He decrees all things that occur or ever will occur. If they don't occur, he decreed that they don't. That's simply it, because he's a God who does all things according to his will, his purpose, his intent. And having, being God, he alone has that right. That's sovereignty. That's sovereignty. Providence pro videre, which means to foresee and plan ahead, but I have the word and italicized here. It's not only to foresee and plan ahead, it's to carry out the plan, to foreordain, to know ahead of time what he's going to have happen according again to his will, a will that he can establish because he's sovereign. He's sovereign and does all these things decretively according to his will. So that's what providence means. So it's not only these are the things I'm declaring, it's and I will see that they're carried out. And he uses the means of of man and his free agency, us making our own decisions, making our own decisions. And when we come to the scriptures, we find out that that they played, the decisions we ended up making played perfectly in the intricate plan of a sovereign God who's absolutely brilliant in his wisdom. However much we end up dithering over decisions, right? And we should be careful to make wise decisions, but sometimes we, we, we dither as though we're atheists. Like there is no God. It's like land on something. Okay. God steers a moving vehicle, right? And it's amazing to think about this. So, I can see, I'm already beginning to see how this would give Paul understanding this, believing it, embracing it, living it, comfort, no matter what the reaction of a crowd is, no matter where he finds himself. Don't you long for that? I do. Let's see what he has to say about himself. Proverbs 13, 6, or 16, 13, rather. It says, the lot is cast in the lap But every decision, and I like the KJV here, the whole disposing of it thereof is from the Lord. So it's the decision is made, it's decreed, and the disposing of it is of the Lord. He does that providentially. He does that through the outworking of his works. That's how it works. And I'm going to give you an example here in a moment. 
So they're casting lots, which is an acknowledgement, a clear acknowledgement of his sovereignty to make the decision. That's how he did things back then. We learned from Hebrews, uh, the beginning of the book of Hebrews, that uh, in those times, in those ways, in those sundry ways, he did things. But now he has done all things and they're all complete in whom? In Christ. We have all that we need. The scripture is sufficient. It's alive. It's living. It's active. It discerns even the the heart and soul of man. So the disposing of it is from the Lord. So when they cast lot, they're acknowledging that he's sovereign and it's determining. So it's determining his will. Listen with the confidence that he also will see it come to pass. Now think about Paul. He knew the Lord showed him in some way quite a while back in the journeys that he will go to Rome. And so he's writing about that later on. He writes that to the Roman church. You know, he's looking forward to coming and so on. So he never loses that. I'm like, how, how do you get to the point where you don't lose that confidence? Because it's, it's confidence in God and the outworking of his will. So I don't get upset if his plan was for me to go this way and I'm going this way. Whoop, I, I misunderstood how he's going to get me to that place but I have not lost, lost confidence, not one whit, that he will get me there. Because it's his will. It's his decretive will. He will get Paul there one way or the other. He's got another name, Jehovah Jireh. Most of you know what that means. He's God who provides. He's the God who provides. Think about that in terms of the context of what we're talking about here. Think about what that means in terms of the fulfillment of his will in your life, the fulfillment of his will in your life and the outworking of those things, he will provide. That, that's included in that name. So God prepares and provides all the means necessary to fulfill whatever he's decreed for his glory. We need to remember that. We need to remember that. So here's the example that I want to show you. It has to do with God's work providentially in the gospel, in how we're saved. And Paul understood all these things, and we need to remind ourselves in this context, the continuous works of God through providence. That's what I want to look at here, especially as it has to do with salvation. Now, I've assembled a, a particular number of verses that hopefully will be a progression for you that you can see the outworking of his work in providence. It's just remarkable. First of all, we'll start with what Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 17 when he said, my father is working until now and I am working. Did you ever figure out what that verse means? Anybody want to? I didn't think so. We have to look carefully at what he's talking about here. What does that mean? My father is working until now and I am working. Well, since God finished his work, clearly his work of creation, right? In Genesis chapter 2, he declared that he's, he's done. Genesis 2 uh, verse 2, and he what? Rested from his works. Exactly. Now mankind is created and he's done with that. So Jesus must be referring to the ongoing work of God's providence. That continues on. Let me show you. So in John 5, verse 20, so just a few verses later, Jesus, with the same crowd, same audience, says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. 
and greater what? Works. Then these will he show him so that you may marvel. There's a transition taking place here because we have the advent of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He has come now. So my father is working until now and I am working. Well, he and the father are what? One. So this work doesn't stop. So that's the idea to keep in mind when we're trying to understand what providence is. It's a, it's a working of God that he's bringing things about. And in this case, it leads right up to the gospel and salvation. Greater works than these will he show him. The him and there, of course, is Jesus, so that you may marvel. So pay attention, he's saying, because God is still at work. But now he's working until now he was working on his own. Now he's working through me so that the works that he does through me, through the things that I say, so through the power that only Elohim claims should cause you to marvel. He's their Messiah and he's here. In John 14, 12, now something different happens, but it's a progression. Now he says, John 14, 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Who's he talking about? And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. You see, it's a handoff again. My father was working until now. Now I am working so that you can see these powerful, undeniable works of God in through me. But guess what? I'm going to have to go back to be with my father. So you're going to continue the work. And that work won't be greater in terms of power. It'll be greater in terms of extent. The gospel will spread around the world because of you. But this all has to do with a work of God. And so all glory goes to God. It has not stopped from the announcement of that of the gospel in Genesis 3. He will do it. See, Paul had complete confidence in this. Greater works will you do. Whoever believes in me. So that would also include not only the disciples, but whom? Us. Yes, us. I'm, I'm, this is... This is mind-boggling here, or it should be for us, that he would use us. But you look at Peter, and there's hope for us, right? <laughs> yeah. Praise the Lord. Now, speaking of Peter, so we get to the point where we see the ascension of Christ, which happens where? It happens actually... Uh, Luke is the author of both his gospel, Luke, with his name, and also the book of Acts, right? So this is really just Acts part two, so there's overlap. He's mentioned in, he mentions the ascension at the end of his gospel, but then it opens with that, right? In chapter one, you're going to be my witnesses. Tag, you're it. I'm going to go and be with the Father. That's exactly what he said. Greater works are you going to do. These works everyone who believes in me, because I am going to the Father. That's what he said in John 14, 12. Now he's gone to the Father. This should make perfect sense to us. But what has to occur to us, if we can stand in the face of whatever opposition, whatever we happen to face in life, if we can remember that this is the working of a sovereign God, a decretive God, 
who is sovereign over all. He makes these, by, these things happen by divine appointment. It's the outworking of his works through the means of human beings, and he will be glorified. It's just remarkable. So you have Pete, Peter. This is a new man in chapter 2. This is a new man, isn't it? He, make, he makes this powerful sermon where suddenly the lights are coming on. He's able to quote from their scriptures, which is our Old Testament, in a way that makes sense now. Why? Because of the advent of the Holy Spirit. He's got the Holy Spirit in him, so he's preaching this powerful sermon. Let's see what he says in verse 22 to 24 of chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty what? Works. Just what Jesus was talking about in John. And wonders and signs. So he did exactly what the Father appointed him to do. He did it. That God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of man. <laughs> of God. There it is. How? How there's certain uh, belief systems in the body of Christ that deny these things. Do you find that mind-boggling? I, I do. Because there's so much comfort in this. You can see God from when we fell all the way to Revelation. Seeing us home. It's all because of a sovereign God who loves us, who sent his son to die for us, to pay the price for our sins through the working of his Christ when he sent his own son. He completed the work of the Father in every minute detail, but then said, I have to go. Where I'm going, you cannot come. What? What does that mean? I'm a, this is what it means. He's going to go, but where I'm going, he reassures them. He's so wonderful how he's comforting them. Here's the one who should be, they should be comforting. He's about to go to the cross and he's comforting them. I go for a place. If I told you that, it's so. I go for to this, to build, to build a place for you so that what? Where I am, you might be. Is it get more powerful that in terms of the intimacy of his love? It's eternal. He's known us before the foundation of the world. He knew you by name. So it goes on. You see the, uh, the disciples then arrested and going before the Sanhedrin. And then in chapter 4, they're released from jail. They said, don't mention that name anymore. And you know what name we're talking about here. Jesus, you won't speak that name anymore. You need to go. They go right out on the temple steps and start praying to the Lord. And they start that prayer, by the way, O sovereign Lord. I love that. But in verse 27 and 28, to our sequential point here, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, who? Whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. For what? To do what your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Do you see what information is sustaining Paul. Also grace. But informationally, just academically, we need to understand this doctrine, don't we? We need to know this about God, that he's not only sovereign, having the absolute right to decree things that will necessarily happen because it is God who fulfills them. The will of man is frustrated because 
It's man who attempts to fulfill them. And if they don't happen to match up with his will, it ain't going to happen, folks. So why do we dither over that? Now we can read Ephesians 2. Very, most of you have memorized it, right? But for the first time, and in this context, listen carefully. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. Okay? For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of what? Works. So that no one may... Would we do that? Yeah. For we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. We are his poema. We are his poem. We are his sonnet. He's the author. He wrote it. He is the poetes. He is the poet. He's the author of every life. He's the author of every act of salvation. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. For what? For good works. You see how this has absolutely nothing to do with how we, how we achieved our own salvation? It has nothing to do with that. No, you're saved by grace through faith, that not of your own doing. Makes that clear? The gift of God, not a result of works. Let's clarify that right up front. But we are his workmanship. We're continuing the work of Jesus Christ. What know ye not that your bodies are what? The members, the hands and arms of Jesus Christ. This needs, this voice needs to speak his words. It needs to give his peace. It needs to represent his truth. It needs to offer salvation. It needs to comfort. It needs to admonish. It needs to warn. All of those things. I am not my own. I am what? Bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your bodies. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Verse 10, that we should walk in them. You walk it out. Be careful, right? Galatians 5.16, that you walk. This has to do peripatel, has to do with the idea of walking out something that's been given to you and something that's fully intentional to happen to you, how you use your body, how you use your time, how you use your life. You have an appointment. It's been given to you. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the one who gave it to you, the one who has that sovereign right to decree it through you. This is absolutely remarkable. So see, when we resist the Holy Spirit, you see how we can grieve him? We're supposed to be cooperating with the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to be uh, spirit-filled, as Galatians 5.16 says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. You won't get off track. Continue to pray, continue to seek through the means of our walking in the Spirit, which is prayer and studying His Word and memorizing His Word. How can Christians fulfill the things that God wants Him to do by way of His will when they haven't spent time to understand what His will is? 
You can't. But we bristle against that because we want to do things like Frank Sinatra. Exactly. So, so providence is like, like the book of Esther, right? Which never even mentions God's name in the entire book. Let me ask you something. Who appointed Ahasuerus to have a sleepless night? Who gave him the idea that he, you know what, I think I'll read through the book of records. Yeah, that'll put you to sleep. (laughs) Who would do that? Look for him. He's working in your life in every detail of it, but you have to look for him. And he wants you to because he wants what? Glory. Glory. Yes, that's me working in your life to be glorified. Who appointed Pharaoh's daughter, by the way, to go down to the river at the point at which Moses is cruising down the river in a basket? Who who appointed the Egyptians, the, the, the traders, to come along on their way to Egypt at the very point at which Joseph is what? Tossed into the pit. What a coincidence. There's a lot of them in the Bible, isn't there? (laughs) It's crazy. You have your eyes open to it. You'll see it everywhere. And you know what? You'll see it in your own life. Instead of dithering, because it didn't work out the way, what? I wanted. Yeah. You fought and you fought. It, it's a hard life to live. It's, it's a, it's a, as, as the Lord said to, to Paul on the road to Damascus, why are you kicking against the goads? What, what are you doing that for? Just yield. That's the simple life. That's the easy life. Easy? Yeah, but things can go wrong for Christians. Yeah, but if you're yielding to the Spirit, those things are appointed. And you can be assured of that. If you get locked up, if you get beat up, that's appointed by the Lord if you're walking by the Spirit. And you're not sinning if you're just yielding to him. That's what Paul has. That's what he possesses. I want that. Don't you? Who wouldn't? So the book of Acts in the life of Paul is just a lot like Esther in terms of of seeing the outworking of the works of God. Providence, that's providence. You have to major on understanding that term. It's not exactly equivalent to sovereignty, as you've just seen now. But it's able to happen because of his sovereignty. But it also, providence involves his immeasurable wisdom, his unlimited power to bring it about. But it's a world he created. Nothing takes extra effort for God to do. It's so easy for him, and yet he sees us dithering over things, worrying and anxious. And that's why Jesus can say, don't be anxious for these things. Is your father not taking care of the lilies of the field? Is he not taking care of the birds of the air? As a matter of fact, his providence extends to the point that he makes sure that they're fed. He makes sure that he, 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 he's such an intimate God in terms of detail. He knows how many hairs are on our head. I can't understand fully. I, I can't comprehend fully, only apprehend to some degree, I guess, as a fallen human being, limited. 
that level of intimate knowledge and love. It's not predicated on what you or I do. He loves you. He wants your best life now. Anybody get that? Nobody? Okay. Never mind, let's move on. So the constant universal interworkings of God, the outworkings of God, are more impressive to me, I don't know about you, than even miracles. Miracles are an interruption on the natural order. Well, since he created it, he can do that. Oh, you need a new set of eyes? Here you go. Eyes. Need an arm? Here you go. Give you a new arm, a new leg. You were lame? You're going to walk now. Even Jesus doesn't make a big deal out of that, right? In a number of places, he even says, don't tell anybody about this. It's, it's, you know, don't, and, and they do anyway, right? No. How does he do providence? How does he do it? He's orchestrating throughout all time all the intersections of billions and billions of things in any given moment. And we're to trust in that. These are opportunities when things aren't going our way to trust in him. That's how he builds stronger faith. That's the point. Thomas Watson makes a good point in his uh, body of divinity. He says this, he, meaning God, he makes use of the wicked sometimes to protect and shield his church. Well, he's doing that for Paul right now, isn't he? Through the Romans. Through the Romans? They're pretty brutal. He can use them. It's nothing to him. And Watson goes on, and sometimes to refine and purify the church. It's true, isn't it? He can use the wicked machinations of man to purify a church, can't he? He can do it. So sometimes evil men, as a judgment and reproof to his own people, he uses the Assyrians or whomever to judge his own people. Habakkuk 1.12 says, O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. If we only would embrace that, only rest in that and trust in that. Oh, Lord, you are right when you have said thus and so about me, for I am a sinner. But this is a necessary work that you're doing. You're using evil for good. That's the whole point of the story of Joseph, isn't it? Makes that point in chapter 45. He makes it again at the end in chapter 50 and verse 20 when he exposes himself to his brothers you meant this for evil, but what? God meant it for good. And not just for salvation. No, no, no. This is for the life of a whole, at least two nations that they would survive because he saved up all the grain and he was able to get grain to his own family up into Israel. So we have to, we can, we can if, if we could be confident that all things really do work toward good? I mean, we recite that verse, but then we turn around and often don't live that way. If we could just be confident all the time that every single thing are God's divine appointments for us for our good, if we could just, if we could just hold on to that, we could avoid fear in circumstances, and we could also avoid resentment toward those 
who attempt to harm us. Couldn't we? We could maybe reach the point that Augustine did when he said, we are beholden to wicked men who against their wills do us good. (laughs) Isn't that good? (laughs) Don't know if I'd feel beholden to people that cause me harm, but I get the point. Who against their wills? Well, of course it's against their wills because they don't want to do anything that's in our favor or does us good. That's a great statement. All right, now we're ready to look at the text. You ready? All right, so we're going to move through quickly. So, got it broken down into three sections for you, and you'll see the word providentially in every one. Instead of just saying the plot conceived, the plot revealed, and the plot derailed, that's just telling the story. That probably be adequate but no this is providentially conceived this ill conceived plot this malevolent plot is providentially conceived isn't it or it wouldn't have what happened that's it now we're thinking right to the pro- the plot providentially revealed and that is actually an amazing part of the story we'll get to it verse 16 to 22 and then finally third the plot providentially derailed. So first of all, the plot providentially conceived. Did I say conceived earlier? Okay. Yeah, conceived. So it's conceived, verse 12, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. So oath is anathematizo. You've heard the word anathema before, which is a curse. And that's what this is. We pronounce a curse on ourselves if we don't fulfill this oath. Amazing. So they place themselves under a, a curse. The Western text actually adds, even if we ourselves should die for it. That's, that's their zealousness. That's their commitment. So they're willing to die themselves to uh, actually if they failed in killing Paul. So, obviously they failed to kill him, so you have to wonder, um, did they kill themselves? Um, No, they don't have to. Actually, the Mishnah allows for certain circumstances where you don't have to fulfill your oath, and this would qualify as one of them. They tried, they couldn't, because Paul is spirited away in late in the evening, so it was impossible for them to kill him. So they might get a pass on that. We don't know. The text doesn't say. Verse 13, there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. So this was likely the Sadducees, the chief priests that he's talking about here, because number one, the Pharisees aren't mentioned. And you remember the way Paul got out of that sticky detail is he was a Pharisee. So he announces that and there's Pharisees and Sadducees on the Sanhedrin, on the council, and the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. And so he stirs up the whole council and gets them fighting toward each other. It's a tactic that may not be may not uh, be entirely ethical, but Paul's like, it got me out of here. So they end up fighting with each other, and that's how he, he gets away. So he's most likely speaking to the Sadducees here when the division was caused. Verse 15, Now therefore, along with the council, give notice to the tribune. So they want to involve both the Romans and the council. 
to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Remember, they couldn't discern any legit charges. So they knew that if they told the tribune, he'd be happy to call a meeting of the council. The council would already be brought on board. They know what the plan is. And they would use the tribune to to fulfill it. This is a plot, a nasty plot, a murder plot that is actually hatched or conceived in the minds and the heart of malevolent evil men. James 1.15 says, Desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin. So when you have some evil in your heart and you're focused on it, you want something to happen that's not right, if it's, if it's held on to long enough in the heart, it will give birth to to sin. It will actually happen. And that's what they're hoping for here. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Job wrote in Job 15, 34 to 35, for the company of the godless is barren. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. That's what they're doing here. And their womb prepares deceit. They're liars. They lie about who Paul is. They lie about a number of things, just about everything. In Psalm 7.14, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. So, you know, this might be one of those times, you know, Paul and what he's facing here with this particular plot where you might say, you're tempted to say, where's God? I'm supposed to get to Rome. Where's God? Why doesn't he stop this? I can't get out of this fortress. He's about to have his nephew come and tell him the plot. Isaiah 59, 4, no one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. Acts 14.16 says this, In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. This is, this is truly amazing and remarkable how God uses these kinds of things for his own ends. See, and this is what gets Paul through. I'm convinced. By God's grace, of course. But an understanding of these truths sustain him. Watson again says this, God permitted their sin, which he never would if he could not bring good out of it. The Lord is pleased to permit it, but he has no hand in sin. God does not infuse evil men or infuse evil into men. He withdraws the influence of his graces. That's what he did with Pharaoh. He leaves Pharaoh to himself, and so Pharaoh hardens his own heart. If God withdraws his graces, all of them from all of us, guess what? Too frightening to think about, isn't it? So he doesn't infuse fresh evil into anybody. He simply withdrew his grace. Great point. And then the heart hardens of itself, Watson says. Even as the light, listen to this analogy, this is great. Even as the light being withdrawn 
Darkness presently follows in the air, but it would be absurd to say that therefore the light darkens the air. That's crazy. The darkened room depends on the light to come, that it might be lit, but it, if it's removed, darkness is the condition that it finds itself in, and so with fallen man. We only have any light because of His grace. Two, the plot providentially revealed. Verse 16, now the son of Paul's sister heard of the ambush. Now, this is an amazing bit of providential outworking, is it not? Paul's nephew? We don't even hear much about Paul's family anywhere else in Scripture. Paul's, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. So this man was probably somewhere in his teens, but this is an amazing bit of providence right here. And so if you back up and go through the book of Acts, we'll go through any book if you will, but Acts that has, carries for us the, eter- the historical record of the founding of the church and all of the things that happen, you will be amazed if you keep in the forefront of your thinking this doctrine. This is God orchestrating all of these things and then apply it to your life. So he knew about it somehow. The text doesn't say how, how he knew about it. If somebody told him, if he was around the corner and overheard them, we don't know. We don't know if he was part of it at first. We're not sure. So he went to the barracks and he told Paul. This is as random as 1 Kings twenty two thirty four, When King Ahab of Israel, remember this? But when a certain man, so this is just anybody, you know what's coming, right? When a certain man drew his bow, and it says, at least in the ESV, at random, right? At random, and struck the king of Israel, this is Ahab, between the scales of armor and the breastplate. So they had different uh, scales, as, as it's called, of their armor that protected the vital organs, but they had to be plates, individual ones, so that they could move and fight. He finds the spot, and I read different perspectives on exactly what, how this worked out in terms of their armor. We're, we don't have time for that. But, but just suffice it to know, this found the one little spot, yeah, that could, that could make it through his coat of mail, his, 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 his metal armor on his breastplate. And he's like, okay, I'm out. The providence of God, how we can just overlook that into our own detriment because then when life comes at us hard, we miss it. We miss it. All we do is we say, at the most, because we're reformed after all, God's sovereign. Well, that doesn't make me feel any better. I knew that. God has the right to be God. Thank you. (laughs) He's working something out here. Verse 17 and following through Verse 22. Let's read what this is here. Paul called one of the centurion. Listen, right there, just notice, he's not freaking out, right? He's not going to call the centurion saying, hey, tell the centurion what you just told me. That's what we might do. Tell him what he... No, he's still calm. Look at his composure. You see it all the way through his journeys. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. <laughs> okay. 
Verse 18, so he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. See, they knew that that's what the tribune was looking for. They're very clever in their malevolence. Verse 21, but do not be persuaded by them. I like how this teenager is giving the tribune some advice. It's great. He's got some moxie, doesn't he? For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Uh, I've always appreciated Numbers 32.23. Behold, you have sinned against the Lord. Be sure, what? Your sin will find you out. Eventually, it will come to light. Proverbs, or uh, excuse me, where am I here? Um, oh, Genesis 44, 15 to 16. Joseph said to them, we're back to Joseph again. What deed is this that you have done? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? This is when he was still in disguise from his brothers. And Judah said, what shall we say to our Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves God has found out the guilt of your servants. See, they embrace this idea that God sovereignly exposes these things. We need to be the same. And now we can look at um, Psalm 90, verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. So this is El Roi. This is the God of seeing. He sees all of these things all the time, everywhere, in man's heart throughout all time. Proverbs 5, 21 to 22, For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. God's fully aware of what they're planning here. And if he wants his servant to continue on to Rome, he will get him there. If he wants me to, to get to the next place, I'm assuming I'm supposed to get, I will get there. It may not be the way I thought, but I will get there. If he doesn't, no matter what I do, I won't. God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether evil, good or evil. Ecclesiastes 12.14 Luke 12, 2, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And there's other verses as well. We need to finish up number three, the plot providentially derailed. Verse 23, then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. So this is 470 Roman soldiers, some carrying spears, some on horses. This is quite an assemblage to get him to Caesarea. Caesarea, of course, is the providential seat of the Roman government for Judea. And that's also where the governor, the procurator lives as well. That's how 
he ends up seeing Felix, where we get to that next time. It's about 60 miles from Jerusalem. You'll see in the verses that follow ours that he, they make it to Antipatris, which is about 30 miles from Jerusalem. On the way to Caesarea, it would have been too much to keep going. They, have, they bed down for the night there. So third hour of the night, they're leaving out at 9 o'clock at night. The third hour of the night is 9 o'clock. So he wants to spirit him out of there. I think that he has high regard for Paul, but I think all, also and probably mainly he wants to avoid this would really explode his career if this happened because there were no formal charges made. And like them or not, the Romans attempted to have everyone abide by the law. That's how they kept the peace. Verse 24, also provide mounts for Paul to ride. Yeah, he likes Paul. And bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. Now this is interesting too, speaking of providence. Luke didn't read this letter. How could he have? So somehow God providentially allowed Luke to find out exactly what was composed in this letter. Remarkable. Verse 27, This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came up upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Is that actually what happened? Those of you who were here last week. Is that what happened? It's not, is it? Nice. Yeah. Nice way to cover yourself. So he didn't rescue Paul because he learned that he was a Roman citizen, right? <laughs> That's not actually how it happened. He was about to scourge Paul. He was about to rip open his flesh to get the answers he wanted. And then he found out he was a Roman citizen and things changed at that point. Verse 28, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. See, he's still thinking in terms of the Roman law. I didn't find anything worthy of death in this man. Who does that remind you of? Jesus with Pilate. That's exactly right. Same thing. Same thing. So Lysias, no doubt, was limited in terms of his full understanding when he listened to what the what the Jews had to say about the charges. He may have even had to have an interpreter there. They would have been speaking in Aramaic. He speaks in Greek. So he's limited. But he picked up this much. This is an issue of their law. But nothing emerged that I could see. So I'm bringing them to you, Felix, and they'll actually call down members of the Sanhedrin and that nasty high priest, Ananias, who had Paul sucker-punched when he thought he was being disrespectful. You remember that. So this declaration of innocence by a high-ranking official automatically makes us think of Christ. 30, verse 30, And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So once again, God providentially, we've seen this happen before, haven't we? Providentially uses the Romans to save Paul's life. Absolutely amazing. 
Let me, I want to close with something that Calvin wrote. Too wonderfully for me to attempt to paraphrase, but this is good. When once the light of divine providence has illuminated the believer's soul, he's relieved and set free. Not only from the extreme fear and anxiety which formerly oppressed him, but from all care. Does that sound good? There's a lot of care these days, yeah. For as he justly shudders at the idea of chance, so he can confidently commit himself to God. This, I say, is his comfort, that his heavenly Father so embraces all things under his power, so governs them at at will by his permission, so regulates them by his wisdom, that nothing takes place save according to his appointment. Oh, that we would get that. that received into his favor and entrusted to the care of his angels, neither fire nor water nor sword can do harm to him, except insofar as God their master is pleased to permit. Give heed. And you will at once perceive that ignorance of providence is the greatest of all miseries. It's true. So that's the one that often we're most kept from really getting a clear understanding of or consistent teaching on. Yet it's throughout Scripture. Ignorance of providence is the greatest of all miseries and the knowledge of it, the highest happiness. End quote. Praise the Lord. Even to your old age, I will be the same. And even... To your graying years, I will bear you up. I have done it. He's already done it. It can be, you know, when you're God and you decree all things, you can say it in that past tense way. You, you follow? <laughs> this is, I have done it, and I will carry you, and I will bear you, and I will deliver you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these reassurances. We find so much solace, so much comfort, so much reassurance. Lord, would we that we would carry this this critical doctrine out from this place, that people would see the light of the countenance of Christ in us that they too would want a reason for the hope they see within us, that we would give it in response with gentleness and respect. Oh, Lord, help us to traverse this frustrated, fallen, violent world, the travail of our sorrows, the confident hope and expectation that you will see us through. You will deliver us no matter what you appoint to befall us because of your great love, as you did for your own Son, who came to die for us, and now has continued his work through us. A remarkable thing. And so we lift up those, Lord, who perhaps this day 
have no idea who I'm talking about. This is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I pray, O Lord, that you would reveal yourself to them because it does take the light of life to dispel the darkness of a sin-fallen heart. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.